good morning. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and for your word. We know that you have brought us all here for a reason. No one is here this morning by accident, and you know the condition in which we all come into this room. You know what we need to hear. And so as we open your word this morning, God, I pray that you would work in our hearts, making us more and more into the people it is that you've called us to be. I lay before you all my thoughts, all my study, my preparation, and my words to be used by you however you choose. I pray, God, that through your spirit, you would speak to each one of us this morning, that we would leave here knowing better who you are and what you have called us to do, and that you will always be with us as we do it. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you would open your Bibles with me to uh, James chapter 5, we'll start in verse 7, or you can follow along in your bulletin as well. So James chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. This is God's word. So my name is Chad. I'm the student minister here at Lake, Mar- at Lake Mary. And uh, earlier this month, I had the honor of leading a team of students and leaders from across all of our campuses here at, uh, at Summit to uh, the Dominican Republic to partner with uh, one, of our, uh, uh, one of the missions agencies we support, Children of the Nations. So this is our team here as we got ready to leave Casa Batesta, our home away from home in the Dominican Republic and begin our journey back to Orlando. Uh, This is at the end of several long, long days of mixing, carrying, and pouring concrete to pour for floors and homes, playing with all these young children who stole our hearts. They were just amazing uh, to see, and taking part in a Christian leadership seminar alongside a group of adult pastors and some middle school-age students from the Batays. To give you a little bit of context, Batays are essentially shanty towns, and they're filled with second and third generation Haitian uh, immigrants. And these folks that live there, they uh, have no Dominican citizenship, so they have no rights and no resources. They live in overcrowded makeshift houses that are built out of palm trees. Basically, they skin the outside off the palm tree and then they nail it to the straightest palm tree uh, uh, cores that they can find. And that's how they build their houses. And they cap it with a corrugated tin roof. So our students, they poured everything they had into everything that we did there. They worked hard, they loved deeply for days on end. And I knew going into the trip that they were amazing people. You see them around here, many of them, and you know that they're amazing people. You see how well they care for your children. You see how well they serve. You see how well they do what it is that God has called them to do. But I'm telling you, on this trip, they went above and beyond even the high expectations that I had for them. I'm more proud of them than I can put into words. 
And I also wanna say just a deep heartfelt thank you to all of you who prayed for and supported us while we were there. It mattered, it helped. There were times when things didn't go as planned, there were times when things were difficult, and I believe that it's your prayers and your support that helped us get through those times when God uh, came through for us and when uh, things changed and, and we, needed, uh, we needed that help. So thank you so much for praying for us. So in this photo, you'll also see uh, towards the left-hand side as you look at it next to my weirdly smiling, grimacing-looking face in the back there, a guy by the name of Franklin. Franklin is uh, our in-country venture coordinator. That's C-O-T-N speak for uh, guide, scheduler, translator, encourager, and in, especially in the case of Franklin, angel. So the reason I bring Franklin up is that he is the OJ of the Dominican Republic. Like OJ, he knows where all the best places are to grab a bite to eat, and he loves sharing those experiences with you. Also, like OJ, he literally knows someone everywhere. He knows most of the people in the Dominican Republic. I am convinced of it. And like OJ, he is so good at figuring out which people, which groups of people would be beneficial in putting them together. He's a great guy, just like OJ. And there is one key way that he differs from OJ, though. Franklin gives the best hugs. Now, if you know OJ, I'm not just trying to pick on him because he's not here. If you know OJ, you know that he doesn't like hugs. In fact, that's one of the secrets to OJ and I's friendship. There is zero chance that OJ and I will ever actually come in physical contact with each other because neither of us like to be hugged. It's great, it's perfect. But Franklin is a hugger, and in my opinion, he's perfected the hug. In fact, one of the best parts of the day for several of us on the trip, for most of us probably, in fact, was when we would get our daily hugs from Franklin. That was part of the ministry that he provided to us while we were there. And so uh, that made it such a special trip. We made such great friendships uh, with our team and with the folks that worked for COTN, as well as among the children and other peoples that we, people that we met in the villages. So leading up to this trip and during this trip, I was wrestling with this morning's passage because let's be honest, it's another difficult offering from James. You know, this is one of those passages that I really wish came with the caveat, don't shoot the messenger. You know, like this is, this is not a fun passage. James has zero chill and he has seemingly no concern for things as trivial as feelings. You know, when we read just that passage alone, we need to take into account that it doesn't exist in a vacuum. In fact, the people and situation that James is addressing in those verses there, those are the workers that didn't get paid, the harvesters whose voices cry out, the innocent who have been condemned and murdered by the people he rebuked in the preceding verses in chapter five. You know, with that in mind, we would like for James's tone to be a little different. We would love for there to be words of immediate comfort and ease, but instead, these people who have suffered, he tells them to hold firmly to their faith in the face of that suffering and to wait patiently for the Lord to set things to right. So by a show of hands, let's be honest, who here wants to hear to be patient while they suffer? Yeah, nobody. I also wanna just be honest, nobody wants to have to, that's not at the top of the list of things you wanna to have to tell people either. So, um, so here I am, I'm wrestling with this passage, I'm trying to figure out where to go with this sermon, what it is that God wants to say to us here this morning. When I remember this axiom that I heard once, and I don't remember where I heard it, but it goes like this, change of pace plus change of place leads to a change of perspective. And I mean, that sounds good, and I really needed something. So I decided to give it a, a test early one morning. 
I poured myself a delicious cup of Dominican coffee, nice heavy dose of sugar, heavy dose of milk in there. I grabbed my Bible, I found a quiet chair on the porch of Casa Batesta. I sat down and proceeded to read all the way through James again in one sitting, just to see if insights would come. Now, I would understand if you would be skeptical, so many of these trite little phrases, so many of these things that people say, they actually like don't work, they're kind of bunk, right? This one does work. See, a change of place and a change of pace, in this case, it did lead to a change of perspective. And that makes sense if you think about it. Our daily routines lead to thought patterns that are optimized for efficiency, and we wind up on autopilot, which is great, because if you had to think through everything that you do in your day, it would be exhausting mentally, and you would get far less things done. It's good that you can go through your morning routine without having to think about each piece of it. It's good that you can operate a motor vehicle with at least some amount of, of autopilotness. You know what to do. You don't have to think about, okay, now I'm going to press the brake. Now I'm going to press the gas. I should stop because that light's changing. We learn those things. We internalize those things. But there's a problem with that way of thinking too. We end up locked into doing things just one way seeing things just one way. And so there are times when it's important to intentionally break that routine. Because when we do that, we wake our brains up to new way of looking at things. So as I sat there sipping my coffee and reading this letter, I had a moment of divine enlightenment. Now last week, Zach said that he could write a book about James that would only need two words. I'm wrong. <laughs> and that's a pretty succinct summary and if I'm being honest, it's one, in fact, that I identify with more than you'd like for me to admit. And we could quibble over the fact that because there's a contraction in there, it's actually three words. But I'm willing to let that go because here's the thing. I can beat him. I can sum up James in just one word. Consistency. That's the word that jumped out at me that morning in Barona as I read through all of James. Consistency. That's it. One word. Book finished. Now, if consistency on its own isn't enough, I would uh, possibly indulge in putting a footnote down there at the bottom. If I did, it would read something like this. In whatever position or situation you find yourself, the thing that you must do is live a life that's consistent with the example and instruction of Jesus. See, consistency is all about bringing who we are into line with who Christ is. And you might be tempted to ask, isn't that kind of the point of all the epistles? And my answer would have to be, yeah, but still. James is a different kind of letter than, say, Romans. Because in Romans, Paul also gets into theology. He likes to build his points on strong supports. He tries to anticipate and then refute the possible objections. By contrast, James just gets to the point. And the point is consistency. See, to James, the only possible response to the incomprehensible and inimitable gift of grace that we have received through Jesus is consistency. Whether you are rich or poor, it's consistency. When you speak, speak consistently. As we're about to look at this morning, if you are suffering, suffer consistently. I think it bears mentioning here that the consistency that we're talking about, the consistency that James is calling his readers to, is a continual consistency and not a perfect consistency. The difference being that a continual consistency is one that acknowledges the faults and the shortcomings of those of us who attempt to live lives that are becoming more and more like Christ. While a perfect consistency is just impossible. And that's kind of the tension that we live in every day as Christians, right? To some degree, how do we live a life that's consistent with the example of Christ? Some days are easier than others. Some ways are easier than others. 
And this command to face trials and suffering with patience is one of the ways that for me, and I'm guessing for many of you, well, at least some of you, is falls on the less easy side of things. So I came home from the DR. I'm still, revel, I'm still mulling over that revelation about consistency. I'm trying to define exactly what suffering is. And I'm trying to figure out, I'm, I'm asking God to show me what it is that he wanted me to say to you all this morning about enduring suffering. Also, let's be honest, I was a little bit thinking, maybe I shouldn't be the guy up here talking about being consistent while suffering. See, part of the struggle with this passage is admittedly the amorphous and vague nature of the word suffering. You should try typing the terms Chicago Cubs and suffering into Google if you'd like to see what ha- and see what happens. See, according to that little info box that pops up after you do your, shirt, your search, there are approximately 936,000 results for Chicago Cubs and suffering. <laughs> At its most basic, suffering is an individual's response to undergoing pain, distress, hardship, or loss. I'll be honest with you, I'm not a Cubs fan, so I don't know if that's what their fan base had been going through. I don't know. <laughs> yes, it is? Okay. Well, that's it. That's it. The Cubs, the Cubs fans understand suffering, uh, and so for those of you here that have been rooting for the Cubs, you, you, can, you can tune out right now. You've got it. You, you got it down. But, uh, so here's the thing. You know, that word suffering, it is a little vague, but it makes for great headlines. But suffering is our eternal response to something negatively affecting us. That can be physical, it can be mental, it can be emotional, or it can be all of those things at once. Suffering is both universal and unique. It's something that we all think about and we all experience, but we do that in a different way. The bigger reason that I struggle with this passage is because I know I'm not the most qualified guy to stand up here and try to offer some how-to lecture on patiently enduring suffering like a guru that's pulling from this vast wealth of experience because that's not my story. My default reaction to suffering has been to ask God to make it stop, to plead with him to change things, to make it go away. You know, last year, I watched my business fail, and as things got more and more difficult, as my life got more and more uncertain, as things started to build up, they built, they built up within me as well, and my reaction that time wasn't to patiently endure suffering, trusting that God would make things okay. It was flailing mess of asking God to fix things and waiting and hoping that he would immediately. I didn't want to learn anything. I didn't want to figure out what it was or see the growth that God might bring in my life. I wanted an end to my struggles. And I wanted it now. So it's not from my own wealth of personal experience that I'm speaking. It's from the inspired words set down here by James. And it's by something that I witnessed. See, as it turns out, I had brought home another insight with, from me, uh, with me from the DR. I just hadn't realized it yet. So let me explain a little bit about that. One of the things that we did while we were in the DR was to take part in this Christian Leadership Summit. It combined our students from Summit with a group from the Batays that was made up of a few middle school-aged students as well as some of the local pastors that reigned in age probably from the, like, the mid-20s into their 40s. This wonderful, awesome church in the Batay of Los Robles hosted us. You can see that here. There's this beautiful shade of green set against like this backdrop. I mean, it was incredible. It was so cool to see what they had built there uh, in that town. And so as we, decide, as we came into this seminar, we decided we were gonna talk about things like cultural differences in Christianity and what we could learn from each other based on those differences. We talked about servant leadership and the uh, model that Jesus provides for us as, as to leaders. We also talked about our testimonies and sharing the gospel. We worked through a modified version 
of Zach's uh, reconstructing evangelism materials. And it was awesome, we had a great time, but it wouldn't be a Summit Students event unless we also invited our new friends to play some of our classic games. And so, as you can see here, our uh, very conservative, straight-laced friends there from the DR eventually did warm up to Over the Mountain, and so we, we would have this incredibly slick floor. You can kind of see the glare on it there in the photo. We would uh, uh, make them play these games, and they would be running towards the chairs, and eventually what you would have is like a diving mess between some of our summit students and some of the students and pastors from the DR all trying to get into these plastic chairs before the other one, and they would go flying across the floor. It was awesome, it was great. It was everything student ministry is supposed to be, and we brought adults into it. It was a, it was a huge win for us. We also enjoyed some time each day with snacks and fellowship because honestly, what's church without food and fun and friends? And so after our services, we would hang out on the, the porch there outside the church and uh, we enjoyed all kinds of stuff. Some great empanadas one day, we had refrescos and then we had Bon Alado. And so Bon Alado is the name of this amazing ice cream place. And if you promise not to judge me, I will admit to the fact that they make the most amazing rum raisin ice cream ever. It was so good, we had such a good time together, we learned from each other, we learned all kinds of new things. And these pastors that you see in the picture here, you see Frank and you see Franklin and you see a couple of the other guys there, these are pastors that take what they do very seriously. They immediately impress me because they know their Bible. They argued passionately for their convictions and they even called me out when they thought one of the questions that I was asking in one of our seminar sessions was a setup. They thought I was trying to trick them and they weren't falling for it, so they called me out. I hid behind Franklin, luckily he's a little bigger, and uh, we talked it out but with Franklin between us, it was great. See, their passion for Jesus, their pursuit of personal holiness, and their desire to reach their communities was so obvious. But what was somehow less obvious to me at times when we were together was that they are living examples of the people to whom James is writing in these verses that we just read. There are people who have been mistreated. They are people who have been taken advantage of. There are people left to suffer by those with money and power. Their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents came to the Dominican Republic at the height of the sugar trade. At that time, the Dominican Republic made an enormous amount of sugar. It was a very important industry. And the way that they found to support that industry was to find people who would do the work for as cheap as possible and let them do it. And so they brought in these Haitian immigrants. They put them in these batets, which were basically work camps. There are over 400 of, the, of such batets in the DR right now. The thing is, the sugar trade is gone. The people are still there. They're people without a country. They've got nothing left in Haiti, nothing to go back to. Many of them have been born there, but by being born in the Dominican Republic, they are not entitled to citizenship. They don't, they, they don't get those benefits. And so they're trapped with no access to medical services, no access to public assistance to help them get food and to help them care for their families in that way, and no access to education. They're people without a country, they're people trapped, they're people just like the ones we read about in these verses that have been left to suffer. And so even though I knew this in the back of my mind, I didn't make that connection because those people, the pastors that I met there in Los Robles, they, they didn't act like they were defined by their suffering. See, it turns out that patiently enduring suffering looks a lot like consistency. You know, rather than being defined by their suffering, their words and actions showed them to be people whose greatest desire was to live lives of increasing consistency with who Christ is. You know, the reality is that there's no quick fix for their immigration problems. 
For many, if not most of those pastors, it means they're going to live out their days in those batets. But they're not defeated by their suffering. Instead, they are used by God to be powerful conduits of love and grace to the world around them. Now, the tendency when you hear about and when you see the suffering endured by people who live in such abject poverty is to feel like whatever it is that's going on in your life, whatever it is that you're suffering, can't possibly be considered suffering by comparison. Here's the thing, though. That sort of thinking is neither helpful nor true. Suffering is is, is individual thing. It's something that we all experience, and it's something that is defined by us. It's something unique to us, unique to the person doing the suffering. So if you're denying your own suffering, you're telling yourself your suffering doesn't matter because other people have it worse, that would be the same as walking into that church and telling those people that the joy they have doesn't matter because we have it better. And these people in their lives, they don't stand in judgment over you or your life. They're not judges, they're examples. They're proof that as hard as it can seem, especially to somebody like me, it is possible to endure suffering with patience. You know, they're not an indictment. They're an example. Now, if you get the idea that what I'm saying is that you endure suffering by tricking yourself into not thinking about your suffering, I just want to clear it up. I'm not saying that. And that would be the equivalent of me knowing that my daughter Kate was terribly afraid of, you know, her, her idea that monsters were hiding under her, her bed and then going home tonight, tucking her in, giving her a kiss on the forehead, saying, good night, honey, sweet dreams. Try not to think about the monster waiting under your bed to eat you as soon as you fall asleep. And that would be a disaster. Not only would I be a horrible parent, I would make certain that literally the only thing she could think about was the possibility that there was a monster under her bed waiting to eat her. These pastors aren't tricking themselves. They're not pretending that everything is fine. They're not going around acting as though Jesus fixed everything and so everything's good now because it's obvious that they're not good, that that things are not completely fixed. But the reason that they're able to patiently endure that suffering is because they know what undergirds that call to consistency. So what is it? What is it that empowers consistency? It's trust. It's trust that holds these six verses together. Trust is the thing that makes it possible to patiently endure suffering by living a life of consistency, even when that's really hard. We've got to have trust. We've got to have trust that something good can come out of our suffering, even if the suffering never comes to an end. We've got to have trust that our life can still have meaning and purpose, purpose, even in the midst of our suffering. We also have to trust that we're not alone as we suffer. So James uses an agricultural reference here. It would have been very easy for the folks that he was talking to to understand. It's pretty straightforward to us as well. And the thing about farmers is the fruit they grow isn't just for themselves. Sure, some of it is, but most of it goes to other people. And so I submit to you that the fruit of your suffering, it may not be for your benefit, but for somebody else. Your pursuit of consistency, the example that you live while you suffer, that may be the thing that brings someone else closer to God. That might be the fruit that comes from your suffering. Our trust needs to be like the farmer who plants the seed and then while he can't see what's going on beneath the soil, instead he has to trust that there is something going on and hope that by patiently waiting that seed will grow to its full potential. We all know that fruit harvested before its time is disgusting. It's gross. It doesn't taste good. It's never as good as when it's fully ripened. And so we place our trust in God 
that while what we can see is the suffering we have to endure, that he is at work in a way that may be unseen that but will ultimately lead to something good either for us or for those around us. We're not simply commanded though to endure suffering and left alone to face it on our own. We are told three times in this, in this passage which, that the Lord is coming, which can make it seem as though maybe he's not here right now. But nothing could be further from the truth. The Lord's coming is a reference to his coming as a judge to set things to right. It's not a negation of the fact that through the Holy Spirit, he's right here with us, right here in us, living through us, enabling us to make it through these things. In verse seven, there's a reference to the autumn and spring rains, and that would have been familiar to his audience as imagery that's talking about the faithfulness of God. They find that several times in the Old Testament. See, alongside our ongoing call to consistency to be more like Christ is God's ongoing consistency towards us. The one whom James assures us never varies, the one who does not change like shifting shadows, walks with us step for step, and he knows our pain. The one whose example we follow is the one who patiently suffered and died on our behalf. In verse nine, James acknowledges one of the biggest temptations we face while we're suffering. When we're in pain, we like to take our pain out on other people. The saying goes, hurt people, hurt people. In response, James reminds us that the coming judgment doesn't just apply to those oppressors as we'd like it to do. The coming judgment applies to Christians as well. So he says, don't grumble against one another or you too will be judged. Consistency is consistency, no matter what. Even those who suffer are not exempt from judgment. Just to be clear, the solution to not hurting people when you suffer isn't to withdraw from community. You know, the call to patiently endure suffering isn't to become a lone cowboy off somewhere doing everything and trying to fix everything on your own. The command to live a life that's consistent with the example of Christ is always a call into community. So if you're suffering, don't hide. Let people come alongside you. Let us be the church for you. A wise man, Jim Keller, once said, true partnership is forged in the crucible of suffering. A friend in need is a friend indeed. Lean into your relationships. Allow people to meet you in the midst of your suffering. Get into a connect group. If the thing that is hurting you, the thing that you struggle with, if what you're suffering is, is, is of the right nature, get into a recovery community like Regroup. If it would be beneficial to you, spend some time working it through with a counselor. Whatever it is, don't go it alone. Figure out how you deal with these things, what you need to do. Be in community. Don't go it alone. So I also want to talk about what we do with verse 11 because in there, James brings up this idea of blessings and Job's restoration. And I think the answer to that can be found in something that John said a few months ago. He said, the measure of our blessing is, the opportunity, is in the opportunity and capacity we have to serve others. Now look, I won't deny that persevering through suffering may lead to a restorative or material blessing like Job received, but you may find that your blessing comes in the form of a greater opportunity and capacity to minister to, to others. 
That may be through the example that your consistency through suffering provides for other people. What you do while you suffer matters. When people look at your life and they see how you handle these things, that matters. You may also be able to share your story when your suffering is done and have that matter to somebody who's facing a similar thing to what you faced. In the spirit of James, I also wanna be clear and direct about a couple of things. The first is this. Don't leave here today confused that being abused by someone is in any way the sort of suffering that you're being called to by this passage. It's not, it's just not. If that's your situation, get help, get out, do whatever it is you have to do to be safe. The second thing I wanna address is this. Sometimes Christians get the idea that if they suffer, it's either because they don't have enough faith or because of some sin in their life, that God is punishing them. And that's not, that's not to say that you won't experience consequences from sin. For example, if you lie all the time, eventually your lies will find you out. Those lies are gonna catch up to you, but God's not gonna punish you by lying for lying by giving you or someone you love an incurable disease. See, the problem with that theology is that it's wrong both from the word of God and from our life experiences, but I know that it exists out there. I've encountered it, I've lived it. I'm in recovery now, but given the right jolt, that faulty wiring in my brain is still there and I can experience this short circuit effect where I wind up in the spiral of thinking that my problems, that the stuff that's going on in my life, the negative things that I'm experiencing are a result of a lack of faith or some sin or failure I've committed. Now look, I know in my head and in my heart that that's not true, that that's not how God operates and you probably know it too, but just in case anyone in here has that thought or has that going on in their life, I want to let you know this. I don't know your situation or your sins, but I know God and that's not how he works. I wish more than anything that I could tell you why you're suffering and how to make it stop, but I don't know either of those things. What I do know is that while suffering is something we all to one extent or another will experience in our life, it doesn't make us less of a Christian. In fact, if you remember from back in week one or from doing the James Challenge, persevering through suffering can actually strengthen your faith. And that should come as no surprise because the one whose name we bear and whose example we follow is the one who patiently suffered and died on our behalf. Look, I've thrown a lot at you, and if there's one thing, one thing that you could take away from this, it's this. There's gonna be hard times, there's gonna be suffering, there's gonna be struggle. But you need to know that in those times you're not alone, that God walks with you, that you can trust him to be there, and that you can trust that you don't suffer in vain. However it is that that works out, however it is that that shows up in your life, your suffering isn't in vain. So ultimately, as we come to the end of James here, we find ourselves back at the beginning, facing the very same question. The question that all of James hinges on. Do you trust him? Do you trust God enough to pursue consistency even when you're suffering? Do you trust God enough to believe that in the end your suffering can lead to something more, either for you or someone else? Do you trust him enough to believe that your life can have meaning in the midst of your suffering? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, whatever our situations are, however it is that we've come into this room, 
pray that you would move in our hearts and our minds, that you would give us the strength we need to endure, that you would help us to live lives of consistency in the face of the things that come against us. God, I pray that your nearness would be real and true to those in, in this room, no matter where they are, but especially to those who suffer. I pray, God, that you would grow our trust in you. I pray, God, that you would show us new, in a new way each day your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.